And it is a joy this morning to be filling in for Pastor Brian. As you know, we are a few sermons into his mini-series from uh, Church History, his Church History Illustrating Principles from uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. And I think he has one more left. And wow, they've been really helpful, haven't they? To see scriptural convictions held to and lived out in the lives of faithful people who've gone before us is deeply motivating. I've told several of you that I was on the verge of tears for almost the entire back half of last week's message. I had to really choke it back when John Rogers, uh, his own kids, were encouraging him to be faithful unto death. If you missed that message, don't worry, I'm not going to re-preach it right now. Um, You can go back and listen to that online, check it out. And when I hear messages like that, I always ask, what did that man believe that enabled him to persevere like that? What did he believe that enabled him to stand in the face of that kind of hostility? And not just persevere himself, but even faithfully shepherd his own family, even his kids, to the point that they would rather see their dad die than forsake the Lord. How did people like John Rogers become battle-ready and stand joyful as the flames enveloped him? And we're starting to feel the urgency of these kinds of questions ourselves, aren't we? For the last several hundred years, the Western church has led a fairly quiet life, at least as it relates to persecution. But we know the dial of hostility toward the Western church is turning And we're starting to to feel that heat and join our brothers and sisters around the world who've been feeling it a long time. And the battle rages on multiple fronts, doesn't it? Over this last year specifically, we felt increasing heat from the state. In some places, people have been told to worship from home indefinitely in the name of public health or face governmental consequences. We've witnessed a pastor in Canada go to prison for keeping his church open during the pandemic. Christian institutions, even like our own Timberlake Christian schools, are now incessantly pressured to allow for children to choose their own gender in the name of inclusion, in the name of non-discrimination or equality. Accreditation agencies are threatening to pull accreditation if they don't. And this is just the beginning. And not only have we felt the heat from the state, but we've also felt the heat from within evangelicalism itself. We could cite numerous examples here, but the pressure to get behind the social justice movement, to admit our inherited guilt of racism, and to view all people in one of two categories as either oppressed or an oppressor, these pressures are strong on the church. Churches that push back against critical race theory and the neo-Marxism that's behind it are often branded as racist and part of the problem. And not just by the culture, but by e- by even by, by other evangelical churches. So the question is not just a question for John Rogers, but a question for every believer. How will we stand? How are you and I going to become ready for the battles that we're destined to face, battles destined to us by the Lord? How can we prepare now What do we need to know? Well, thankfully, in our text this morning, in Ephesians 6, Paul answers questions like these. Paul knows that the battle is fierce. He knows that it's one that we cannot escape. But it's not fundamentally a battle against our human enemies, as significant as they are. Primarily, Paul's going to show us this morning, and most fundamentally, we are at war with a truly invisible enemy with the principalities and powers in the heavenlies, with Satan and his hordes. He is our most dangerous enemy, and Paul wants to equip us as his church to stand against that enemy. And not just stand, as important as that is, but also to advance. Advance against Satan for the sake of Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, wants to set the church ablaze for Christ's mission. He wants us to realize that by virtue of our salvation, we've been swept up into the winning side of a great cosmic battle. 
the battle for the souls of, of men and women and children. As his new and resurrected humanity, the church is Christ's army, empowered by him to progressively overthrow Satan and his hordes as others come to faith and grow in Christ, as more and more churches are planted and established. We are very much in a war. We're on a conquest every day. And this comes with some incredible implications for how we should approach our lives. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. And we're going to be looking at one of the final paragraphs in the letter to the Ephesians. This is Paul's classic passage on spiritual warfare. And what he says here is incredibly significant, and it guards us from at least two extremes that are sadly very common um, in evangelicalism today. On the one side of the spectrum, this passage is often misinterpreted, and it takes on a life of its own. It ends up actually contradicting Paul's teaching elsewhere, according to some of these interpretations. The idea of spiritual warfare is often enshrouded in mystery and fear. As one author said, he says, some Christians envision spiritual warfare as a scary movie with ghosts and bizarre special effects. Others remove any personal responsibility by attributing everything to the devil. You know, the devil made me do it. Kind of statements like that. As we're going to see, the devil and his hordes are formidable foes. But they are only... They're one of only three problems that we have. Our own sinful flesh, the world's system, and the devil. So Paul's teaching in this letter is going to help us avoid that extreme, that pitfall. But on the other side of the spectrum, and likely because of the abuses of spiritual warfare, some pastors barely even mention the role of Satan or the demonic realm. And beyond that, on a practical level, we we often don't even think about what's happening in the heavenlies. As if what we see is the only thing that exists in front of us. As that same author says, we often do not envision the battle that we are in at all. We don't live in the reality that we are up against forces bigger than ourselves. Forces that are highly deceptive and vying for our allegiance. So, there's a lot here in this passage, but if you boil it all down, Paul is calling the church to stand. To stand. Stand against Satan for the advance of Christ's mission on earth. And this morning, we're going to just look at the first half of this passage where Paul lays out some essential insights we've got to know if we're going to stand faithful. If we don't have these insights, we will not stand faithfully. We won't be ready for the battle. We'll be like soldiers that are dropped into a firestorm in enemy territory without the most minimal preparation. So as you can see on the screen, I've entitled our message this morning, Battle Ready, Standing in Advance, Standing for the Advance of Christ. And Paul's going to take us through four essential insights about this cosmic battle. Four insights that we've got to have, we've got to believe, we've got to live upon if we're going to stand battle ready. So if we're going to stand, we must, number one, receive the Messiah's strength, Paul tells us. We must receive the Messiah's strength. Look with me in verse 10. Finally, be strong or be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. In the face of this potentially terrifying battle, we need inner strength, don't we? Right out of the gate, Paul calls us to obtain this strength. And it's a really interesting command if you sit here and think about it for a minute. He's commanding us to allow something to happen to us. It's a a passive command. Be strengthened. It means that any strength we have, or we will have, has to come to us from outside of us. 
tracking? It's a subtle reminder that we don't have any strength in ourselves. That we're utterly weak apart from Christ. Without Him, we can do nothing. Right? John 15. We can't dig down deep and draw up strength from within ourselves. It's just not there. Or at least not any real strength to stand against these foes. And when we're weak and afraid, we certainly don't want to try to find strength in the wrong places. Places that offer strength, but really will let us down in the end. Things like presidents, bank accounts, military might, or just good old optimism and positive thinking. It's not helpful. Not ultimately helpful. So where do we go for this real strength? How do we get it? Well, notice what Paul says. He says we're to be strengthened in the Lord. Then he adds a second phrase. And in the strength of his might. Now he adds that second little phrase, in the strength of his might, because Paul wants to remind us just how strong our Lord is. He didn't have to say that. He could have said, be strong in the Lord, be strengthened in the Lord, and then move on. But he says, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So he's calling attention to that phrase because he wants to remind us just how strong our Christ is. He wants to remind us that Christ's mighty strength is leveraged for us weak little believers. And when we know and actively call this to mind, when we call to mind just how strong our Lord is and how His strength is leveraged for us, for our good, over Satan and against His diabolical schemes, guess what happens? Strength. We grow confident, not in ourselves, but in Christ's power. The power that He promises to exercise for us. So, if we're trying to wrap our minds around this, we see this happen in multiple spheres of life, right? So take, take the third grader on the playground. He's intimidated and demoralized by the sixth grade bully who's bigger and stronger than him. If he's by himself, he's afraid and he gives in to the bully. But if he knows his strong dad is standing on the other side of the fence, just kind of over by the, just beyond the swing set, his dad's watching, ready to help, That little boy has found some new strength, hasn't he? He's filled with renewed strength, renewed boldness to stand against the bully. He's strengthened by his dad's strength. The same is true of us. But that raises another question, doesn't it? Why are we so often afraid? If we know that, or we say we do, why are we afraid? Well, Paul knows it's hard for us to really believe how incredibly strong Christ is. Paul knows that we often struggle to really embrace that God's power really is leveraged for us, for our good, when everything seems crumbling around us. So, one of the first things Paul does for this church, before this passage, is he prays for them. He prays, by extension for us, that God would help us understand the magnitude of his power. Look on the screen. Paul says back in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might. That's the same phrase in our passage, by the way. That little, pa- that little phrase he includes, Paul includes here. It's the same phrase. According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That power, I pray, Paul says, that they would see that that power is leveraged for them. The greatness of it. The immeasurable greatness of it. In other words, Paul's saying, Ephesians, I'm praying that God would help you understand the magnitude of his power that is leveraged for you. And just as an encouragement to you, as elders and pastors here, we pray these things for you too. We're not apostles, obviously. We're just pastors and teachers, elders. But each week, the pastoral team prays through a portion of our members' list, our roster. You're being prayed for by name 
that our great God would help you to understand the immeasurable greatness of His power toward you so that you would stand in these coming days. So make this a consistent prayer for yourself, for your heart, for your family, those under your spiritual influence, your friends here at the church. God, help us really see the magnitude of your power. Help us believe it. Help us trust you and not to doubt your power. But just how strong is Christ? Especially when it comes to Satan and his hordes on earth. Well, it's almost as if Paul knew that we would have that thought because he anticipates that question in the very next verse in Ephesians 1. If we keep going in, in this chapter, Paul is going to show us just how strong Christ is, how, how powerful He is, especially as it relates to our mortal enemies. He says that Christ has been seated in the heavenlies far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, so that's a reality, this age, and also in the one to come. And He put all things under His, Christ's, feet. In other words, Christ is far above every other being, human and spiritual, in authority and power. No one can touch Him. He governs all according to His will, even Satan. We saw this clearly a few weeks ago, didn't we? From the book of Job. Christ is enthroned far, far, far above every possible power. Now this should be incredibly strengthening for us. Why? Because Paul goes on to say in chapter 2 that Satan once had complete sway over us. We were once totally held captive to our dark Lord, completely under His influence, dominated by our fears and fleshly desires, whether we recognized it or not, and we could do nothing about it. Look in chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, and here it is, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. He had complete sway over you. But when you heard the gospel, when you recognized your need for Christ, for forgiveness, you turned from yourself and your sin, you turned to Him, you were instantly united to Christ. The Holy Spirit, Paul would say, claimed you as His own, and He freed you from Satan's dominion. Hallelujah. But why did you believe when you heard the Gospel if you were dead? How did you believe? Paul says, by God's mighty power and because of His unfathomable love, Christ resurrected you from death to life. He made you alive. But God, notice the subject, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive together with Christ. He gave you new life, and that's why you believe. And as incredible as that is, Paul doesn't stop there. That's not all he says about what happened to you at your conversion. Not only were you made alive, but you were, notice his language, raised up. He's raised us up with him. Who's that? Christ. And he has seated us with who? Christ in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We'll lean in here, because here's where it intersects with our theme. It means that in the most fundamental sense, we have been exalted and enthroned above every evil being because we are united to Christ. 
It means we are eternally safe. And it means that we are in a position, catch this, of authority above them. Not, not by our merit, but because of our union with Him. We are literally seated with Christ on His throne above them. That's the idea. We have access then to His power over them, so our success is sure. So back to our text. You can see how this is relevant, right? And how important it is. And why Paul went to great lengths earlier in the letter to unpack this theme of God's power in Christ for us. Christ's strength as described here is what we draw on to be strengthened by Him so that when Satan fiercely roars, when the onslaught comes, and it will, that we do not cower in fear or flee in faithfulness. If we're going to stand, we must have Christ's strength pulsating in our inner man. But that's not all. Paul gives us a second insight in this passage. If we're going to stand, Paul says, we must appropriate divine weaponry. We must take for ourselves the weapons that have been provided for us and learn to use them. Look with me in verse 11. He says it twice in this passage. Commands us twice for this. Put on, here's number one, put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then skip down to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. So twice in these verses, Paul tells us to appropriate God's complete armor. Verse 11, he tells us to put it on. Verse 13, to drive the point home, he tells us to take it up. So what is this armor? Well, let's tease this out a bit, just making some observations of the text. Well, it is surprisingly ordinary. The weaponry that God's provided for us is surprisingly ordinary. Now, I don't mean by this to minimize our weaponry. It's the most potent weaponry we known to, known to a human being. But it is ordinary. I know we're skipping ahead just a little bit. We're not going to cover this passage today. But Paul spells out exactly what the armor is beginning in verse 14. And it's, it's things like truth, righteousness, Readiness, faith, salvation, the Word of God, and maybe by implication, prayer. Now, we're not going to unpack them. I just want you to notice how ordinary those are. Paul doesn't tell us to arm ourselves with exorcism abilities. He doesn't tell us to arm ourselves with special chants or anything else. He tells us to arm ourselves, get it, with the normal means of grace. He wants our church to be drenched with truth in our minds, our hearts, corporately. We'll see why in a minute. He wants us to be confident in Christ's righteousness. It's our breastplate and to reflect that righteousness in our own character, in our relationships, within the body, and in the world. He wants us to cultivate faith in God's promises. He wants us to grow in our intercessory prayers for each other and for the advance of the mission. That's appropriating the weaponry. It is weaponry, and it is very powerful weaponry, but in, it's only a metaphorical sense of weapons, right? It's an image that Paul is using. The weapons that we use to defeat Satan and advance Christ's kingdom are none other than the radically normal means of grace. And that should be an encouragement to us. Notice next that the weaponry is completely sufficient. It's completely sufficient. Paul says in the command to take up the complete armor. The complete armor. It's one word in the original. And its emphasis is on the fullness, the fullness of the armor. It's the complete set of instruments used in both defensive or offensive warfare. Paul's telling us that we don't need anything else other than what God provides in order to stand against satanic onslaught. 
in order to advance in successful counterattacks for Christ's sake. The word, prayer, a righteous life, all in the context of the local church, these kinds of things are the divine means that people are converted and changed. People are delivered from death and satanic oppression and the enslavements of the flesh. We should not fall prey, beloved, to the lie that we don't have what we need to grow. That we don't have what we need for the mission. We have it. According to Paul, we don't need more stuff to flourish. Different forms of teaching, we don't need it. We have the complete armor. We don't need supplements to thrive in Him. According to Paul, we have the complete armor already provided from God Himself. We can't improve upon it. Notice also that the weaponry is both defensive and offensive. Defensive and offensive. Often I think that we miss the offensive aspect of this armor because the, the text, kind of the way we hear this is sort of stand firm and that's, that's, that's definitely the, the thrust of this passage is to stand. But in the imagery Paul uses, it's not merely defensive. I think we're, we're, we sometimes think we're just supposed to stand passively against Satan instead of to launch out in counterattacks. But both are envisioned in this weaponry. Paul pictures protective gear, so there's the defensive side, like helmets and shields, but he also describes offensive gear, like the sword of the Spirit. And I think by implication, intercessory prayer. Paul knows that through the prayers of the saints, he, he, he asks them to pray for him so that he would have boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, so he had boldness to proclaim the sword, so they go together. So weaponry is both defensive and offensive. And notice also the weaponry must be personally appropriated. The weaponry must be personally appropriated. It's been provided to us from God, but we have to actually put it on. We have to actually take it up. We have to actually learn to use what He's given to us if we're going to stand against Satan. Just having it's not enough. Our weaponry won't do us any good laying on the closet floor. We've got to learn to use the weapons and to clothe ourselves with this kind of protection. So how do we do it? Well, Paul is going to go on in this passage to call us to actively pursue them. So get after cultivating these things and and receiving these these weapons and using them. And he he spells each of those out um, briefly there, but it kind of almost leaves you you hanging like, wow, is there any more instruction on this? Paul seems very significant. Um, You're just leaving us with a metaphor and telling us to put it on. Well, I think this is because he's already told us in the letter to the Ephesians. I think what Paul is saying here, this call to arms, so to speak, is just another way of saying what he's already told us in the letter. How do I know that? Well, the command to put on, does that command ring a bell? Think about Ephesians. Put on. You heard that before? We have. Paul told us back in chapter 4, verse 24, that our central responsibility as the new humanity is to put on the new man. This new humanity that we've been given in Christ, freely given by Him, obtained by Him, given to us. We're to learn to put it on. It's a new humanity that's been created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth. The truth bears this out and produces this in the life of of the believer. As we renew our minds in the truth then, we learn to live the way that God intends right here, right now, in the midst of hostility. So we could say that spiritual warfare, hang with me, spiritual warfare is happening as we do this. Now if you think, wow Clay, that's just a stretch just from that one little verb, put on. Well Paul himself connects these dots. In Ephesians. In chapter 4, he shows us that spiritual warfare is happening as we learn to love each other in the mundane aspects of church life. In 
chapter 4, verse 26. Just turn back there. One page. Chapter 4, 26, verse 26. Paul tells us we need to deal with our anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So deal with our anger, in other words, quickly in the church. But do you remember what happens if we don't deal with our anger? Paul says in the next verse, we give the devil an opportunity. What does that mean? Opportunity for what? Well, I think more literally, we give him a place in the church. We give him an opportunity to influence, to infiltrate. This means then that spiritual warfare is happening as we deal with our anger and as we cultivate patterns of forgiveness and reconciliation. Satan's kicked out of the church, we could say, and Christ's mission advances in the mundane aspects of body life. So, if you flip back to chapter 6, I think Paul's saying the same thing here. He's just using different language, a different metaphor. He's using a wartime metaphor. And this brings out the urgency. And it helps us to see the stakes of what we are involved in. So we could say it like this. To appropriate the armor is to learn the truth in the context of the local church is to trash those old satanic ways of living and to get after the new Christ-like ways of living. And as we do this, we are actively standing against Satan's schemes and we are advancing in the mission of our Messiah. Now this leads us to our third essential insight that we've got to know if we're going to stand. We have to understand our enemy. We have to understand what our enemy is up to, what he's like. Like any good general, Paul wants us to be informed about the tactics of the enemy of our souls. Look with me in verse 11. He says that we may be able that we should put on this armor so that we will be able to stand against the schemes, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Feel that? It's a long list. He briefs us on several things we've got to know about our enemy. This long list. And we'll talk about why. We learn, number one, is that he specializes, our enemy specializes in deceptive propaganda. He is a schemer. Paul says in verse 11 that we need the armor because it will equip us to stand against the devil's schemes. Schemes. His scheming is fundamentally an attempt at deception. An attempt at diabolical misinformation, at satanic propaganda. It's a battle for the minds of human beings, a battle for what they believe to be true, a battle over whether or not they will heed the word of God. And we of all people, we must understand that our enemy is fundamentally deceptive. Why? Because we're easily deceived. It doesn't help that in our flesh we're still susceptible to that deception. Paul describes back in chapter 4, verse 22, the old man that we're going to have to keep putting off. This old man is corrupted by the desires that are churning in us that spring up from deception. So to say it backwards, we're fundamentally deceived in our old Adam. That churns up all these desires for sin because we're deceived, and then we act on those desires and we corrupt ourselves. This means then that we're weak in ourselves, that we're undiscerning in ourselves, which means then that we can't trust ourselves at all. We have to be suspect of what we think, we have to be suspect of what we feel, and only rely on what comes to us objectively from the pages of Scripture. Scripture. 
And our first and last pieces of armor drive this point home. Our first piece is the belt of truth. And really the final thing, the thing that wraps it all up, is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. This is our only hope against His deceptive schemes. That's it. It's truth. And hang with me here for a second. If truth is central, and it is, the local church is central as well. Why is that? Because, according to Paul, in chapter 4 of this same letter, he says God has raised up local pastors and teachers, among other giftings, to clarify and promote the truth in the church, to equip the saints in the truth. And then on top of that, he's equipped a healthy and maturing congregation to reverberate that truth among its members. So that Satan's lies and his divisive antics are more quickly exposed. That's why he's so passionate, Paul's so passionate about every single church member. That's all of you speaking the truth with his neighbor. You can't do that with the universal church. You can only do that in the context of a local assembly that have, that have covenanted together. Each one of you speaking the truth in love with his neighbor. Ephesians 4.25 this means we desperately need each other because guess what? When we are deceived, we do not know it. So truth has to come to us from outside of us. And that happens in the context of the, of the body, of the assembly. So he says we need to realize that our enemy is crafty. That he specializes in deceptive propaganda. But he also says that we need to know that he's not human. We need to know that he's not human. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, it sounds like a, a duh statement when I'm like, devil's not human. Um, until we realize how much we actually need that reminder. Paul knows that we're tempted to misdiagnose the ultimate enemy as other human beings. He knows we're tempted to forget about the animating influences behind those human beings. He's not saying we don't have human enemies. We certainly do. Paul did. Paul warned people about his human enemies. They're just not ultimate. Remember back to chapter 2, we just looked at it. Unbelievers are described there. You and I were described there as quite literally following Satan. Meaning the devil is leading Unbelievers. He has blinded them with his lies, and they are marching to the beat of his drum. So, this means if we're going to stand, we're not ultimately standing against other human beings, against other bearers of God's image. We're warring against Satan, the enemy of humanity, and we're warring against his hordes. But as obvious as that seems to us, we're notorious for misdiagnosing the enemy, aren't we? Like notorious. Find it in my own heart, right? We sometimes think our spouse is the enemy, or our kids are the enemy, or that unruly church member is the enemy. Maybe we wouldn't say it, but we functionally act that way. We get angry at our unbelieving coworkers, we're or, or, or we're frustrated by our inconsiderate roommates who make our lives challenging, or immoral civic leaders. We mistakenly think they are the ultimate enemy. But instead, we need to renew our minds and see satanic activity behind sin and sinful people. This does not, hear me out, this does not absolve people from their own responsibility. Remember, Satan is one of three problems that we have, our flesh being the other, one of the other ones. We're not absolved. This doesn't absolve people from their responsibility, but instead it helps us, this knowledge helps us to be patient, to take pity, to show mercy, and to seek to help other people see their deception for their own sake. You tracking? 
Satan wants to kill them. And they have no idea. Satan wants to disrupt your marriage with that church relationship. And this realization that he's not human, our ultimate enemy is not human, this changes things, doesn't it? And Paul knows that, and that's why he reorients us here, reminds us of this. And the last thing Paul tells us about our enemy is that he, or maybe we should say they, are way more formidable than we realize. Way more formidable than we realize. Look in verse 12. It says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but who do we wrestle against? Against, now look, look at this list. The rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's quite a list. And I think the point of the long list, where Paul piles up these descriptions of, the, of these evil spiritual beings, is to remind us just how significant Satan and his hordes are. They are the spiritual rulers and authorities, Paul says. Likely they are given those names because they exercise authority over human rulers and authorities. Although God reigns supremely over everything and sovereignly over every being, including Satan, there is a real sense in which fallen humanity has been given over to Satan. They are under his influence and power. In the interchange between Jesus and Satan in Luke 4, you see this come out. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says that we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This present darkness. He means this age is an age of satanic darkness. It's an age that needs the inbreaking of the light of Christ, the Messiah. Satan is not omnipresent but he has myriads of beings who work for him to carry out his murderous will. They are all conniving. They're all scheming. They animate the movers and shakers of this age, and they are far more powerful than we are in ourselves. And this realization is meant to snap us out of our lethargy to snap us out, to drive us back to God, to create some urgency so that you will get after preparing to face them. The next time you struggle to get out of bed, the next time you struggle to, to get up and read your Bible and pray for those saints that are on your prayer list, envision Satan and his hordes at your door waiting for you to come out so they can get at you to deceive you. And remember that you have no chance against them apart from knowing God's truth. Not some chance, zero. Apart from knowing the truth. Let this drive you to shepherd your children and your disciples in the truth, put in the extra time to find answers, let it drive you. This has to drive you. This conviction that he is formidable, that we are weak. Let this drive you to more faithfully intercede for other people, to more zealously pursue your own growth, and to find accountability in the local church and commit to it. You can't survive outside it. And that's exactly where Paul goes in our passage. Notice in verse 13, he says, Therefore, meaning in light of how formidable these foes are, that's why then you should take up the whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. This brings us to our fourth and final insight. If we're going to stand... We cannot underestimate the battle's intensity. We can't underestimate the battle's intensity. Now, I'm drawing this insight out from several words in this passage. Notice in the, the verse we just read, verse 13, there is an evil day coming, what Paul says there. 
Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, you might be thinking, now, hang on. Aren't all the days evil that we were just talking about? (laughs) Aren't we living in evil days, plural? Yes, we are. Paul says this back in chapter 5, verse 16. This is the age of darkness, like we just saw. But here, it's interesting, he shifts to the singular. Paul's talking about a coming evil day. A day that he wants us to be ready to withstand. So what's he talking about? Well, I know that Paul would agree that we engage in a form of spiritual warfare every day. But Paul understands that even all the demonic hordes are are not omnipresent. They can't be everywhere at one time. And he understands that there are particular seasons of crushing pressure toward sin. Toward unbelief, toward believing lies. You may be in one right now. There are times coming that will be especially crushing, whether that's persecution or just dealing with your own flesh. But it's the pressure is coming from the satanic temptation. And Paul's point is, I think, that he wants us to realize that these days are coming, or this day is coming, and it's coming soon for every single one of us. There is an evil day on the horizon and a day in which the battle will be especially fierce and we've got to be ready for it. And let's add to this. So we've got that one word of the evil day, but let's add to this another word that Paul uses in this passage. And we see that he wants us to realize the battle is not an easy battle. He calls it our struggle. Our struggle in verse 12. ESV translates it, says we wrestle. We wrestle with these. This word has the idea of close physical combat. Of an intense struggle against a strong enemy. In other words, Paul's telling us that victory will not come easy. We've got to scrap at it. We're going to get punched in the mouth and laid out on our backs from time to time. But we cannot let this rattle us. We can't let it cause us to give up. The Lord would have us spit out the tooth, get up in repentance, and go back into the fight with faith and hope and joy. You say, hope? How is that hopeful, right? You're telling me I'm going to get punched in the mouth in sanctification? Yes. I'm not telling you that. Paul is. It's a struggle. But, here's the deal, you are fighting back. You're not just getting punched, but you're punching at the satanic hordes with the infinite power of Christ. Every act of obedience, every act of faith, every intercessory prayer, you are at war in the power of Christ. You're using His weapons. The Messiah's weapons, the armor of God, the the weapons that the Messiah used to overcome his enemy, those are the ones you're using. You are on the offensive in this present darkness, walking as children of light, extending the Messiah's light in this world, and don't forget that he has, in the most fundamental sense, already won the ultimate battle. Even if Satan kills you in the fight, Even if he takes your life, guess what? You will be raised from the dead and tread upon his head. But, if we think it's supposed to be easy, if we underestimate the intensity of the battle, we're setting ourselves up for defeat. We're setting ourselves up for fear. We're setting ourselves up for self-pity. To be driven by self-preservation. We're setting ourselves up for anxiety and depression. And Satan will have the upper hand in the battle. So do not let him do that. Arm yourself by knowing that the battle will be intense, but also knowing that Christ is with you and He's fully resourced you for it. 
So there we have it, right from Paul. Four of his essential insights into spiritual warfare, four insights that he stood upon, four insights that enabled him to have strength and to stand firm in the midst of tremendous opposition. Truths like these truths emboldened men like John Rogers to endure the flame with joy. These kinds of truths were even passed on by him to his wife, to his children, and no doubt to his own disciples. So if we hope to stand, we have to know them too. We have to live by them day by day. And we most certainly need to pass them along to those under our influence, under our shepherding care. So may the Lord cause this vision to seep into our hearts today. And may we grow strong by them to stand in the evil day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a clear word to us this morning. Thank you for your servant, Paul, just the clarity with which he writes. The clarity that you inspired to, to edify us as a church. May you use it to steady our often fearful hearts. We know, we admit freely that we are so desperately weak apart from you. We admit that we have often run to other portals for our strength. We admit that sometimes we're deceived. We think we're strong in ourselves, but we are not. So we confess this to you. We need you. And we pray along with Paul that you would cause us to know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. That you would enable us to stand as we fill our hearts with your truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.